Hi, I am Ladu Chaudhary. I teach international relations at University of Rajasthan, Jaipur. I am General Raj Shukla. I served for 43 years in the Indian Army. Uh, over diverse appointments, uh, I have held appointments uh, in the Kashmir Valley along the line of control in the east with China in the desert theater. I've been commandant of the Army War College. I've held appointments in the Directorate General of Perspective Planning and the Military Operations Directorate, which look at strategic military futures, force structures, force modernization. And uh, my last assignment was uh, Army Commander, Army Training Command in Shimla. I retired from there on the 31st of March, uh, earlier this year. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission, to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. So in this podcast, we will discuss emerging military threats and India's Indo-Pacific strategy with Lieutenant General Raj Sukla. Uh, you have been a scholar warrior uh, and a strategic thinker on India's military strategy. With your wide operational experience and research, uh, in a co-authored research article with General A.K. Singh, you have argued that the 21st century, uh, in the 21st century, identification and quantification of threats and military capabilities to counter these th- threats is difficult. Uh, how do you conceptualize the emerging nature of conflict and future warfare? Uh, So see, to put it, uh, I mean, both the subjects are extremely vast, but if I would, you know, condense it succinctly, it would be like this, that we have the traditional domains of air, land, and sea. So let's call them the traditional domains. And militaries thus far focused on proficiencies in these traditional primary domains. But I think these... The most striking change in recent times with portents for the future is the salience of emerging domains like space, cyber, and EW. Now, information warfare. Now, these are no longer buzzwords, but uh, as has been proven in many recent conflicts, the proficiencies in these domains are becoming increasingly salient. So I think we are in entering an era of what is called multi-domain operations, where militaries which can skillfully merge their proficiencies in the emerging domains with the traditional domains will be the ones with strategic advantage. As we have seen, the traditional domains are in Ukraine. The traditional domains are equally important because we've seen the return of industrial era combat. So I will not weigh, you know, on one against the other, but I would say that, you know, both the domains are getting salient and within existing budgets, how you can skillfully merge the capacities in both these domains will determine, uh, shall I say, the the privileged, well-performing militaries of the future. That in, in brief, 
should give you an idea of you know the emerging changes in what we call the character of war so the nature of war is constant those kind of issues like you know on a vala the traditional fire and maneuver the grind of battle that remains salient but emerging domains are increasingly influencing the traditional domains so militaries have to be extremely smart and nimble to merge the attributes of the two uh, a key rationale of the quad which is an informal group of four major powers japan the us india and australia has been uh, uh, organized to counter these threats and securing the indo pacific region through alternative mechanisms uh, offensive military capability and intent in the region to be specific allusion and attribution to offensive chinese uh, capabilities is unstated in major policy document of the indo pacific strategy of us and its other western parts on the other hand china has blamed proponents of the covert as a destructive and artificial tension creator in the region uh, how do you think or how indian strategic thinker pursue the american reluctance and uh, reluctance to build a strong military deterrence against china you see um, you know let's first look at the indo pacific and then we will see where the quad fits into the indo pacific now you are a scholar you will know very well that the indo pacific is emerging as uh, what shall i say uh uh in arena where there is increasingly going to be greater connection and contestation so there will be opportunities and there will be threats to mitigate these threats and to maximize opportunities nations will do what they have to also there is little doubt that it is becoming an arena where we are seeing this rivalry between a leading superpower and uh, a rising challenger unfold now you may in all these documents not name them but they are very obvious so the leading superpower is usa and uh, the rising challenger is china and uh, it is also a region where you see expanding militaries and several nuclear states so actually if you ask me uh, this new mental map of the indo pacific if i may make just one more point we referred to it in the past as the asia pacific now when you call it the indo pacific you are acknowledging the salience of india which is the second most populous nation on the earth it's a rising economic power and without doubt it's going to be somebody a, a, a nation which which counts in the future so the indo pacific while there are a lot of opportunities there is little doubt that it is going it is going to be an arena where nations will do what they have to to influence the balance of power and the very term indo pacific tells you that in statecraft mental maps matter and it points to the emergence of a new strategic system and as chinese assertiveness grows you will find responses coming in these groupings like quad which is as much a sign of you know shall i say uh, strengthening multipolar responses to the power and influence of china 
as uh, it is for economic opportunities. So I think there are two aspects there. Firstly, I think I will disagree with you that the Americans, they may have not named them in that particular document. But for all the action that we have seen in recent times, President Biden's recent visit, uh, Secretary of State Blinken's China strategy, which was unfolded in a Asia Society seminar in, uh, in Washington recently. More than any time in the past, the Americans have said pointedly that China is a competitor and they are pivoting very vigorously to the Indo-Pacific. Of course, there are larger issues. Ukraine interrupts that pivot or it weakens that pivot. It stalls that pivot. But there is little doubt that America is making a determined bid to, shall I say, minimize Chinese influence in the near seas and increasingly in the Indo-Pacific. And Quad very wisely, I think, is a broad-based grouping, which means what? That it is not centrally one with military implications. There is everything to Quad, from vaccines to economic engagements and to other issues. But it also has a, a military dimension. And it is a good signal to China that if you get needlessly aggressive, countries will come together in partnerships to, 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 to uh, check your uh, influence. So I think that's the rationale of the Indo-Pacific, the rising tensions is also the opportunities and why groupings like uh, Quad become, uh, become salient. Sir, and you have been constantly arguing that uh, India is facing multiple strategic dilemma as it is imbued with greater uh, strategic and military adversity uh, given the uh, China-Pakistan nexus. And at the international level, we are also facing a dilemma in terms of growing strategic rivalry between China and the US as well as the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So uh, our political choices are actually limited by these external variables. Uh, now the, the concern for us is uh, for India is how does India's engagement in the Indo-Pacific region optimizes its strategic interest and fulfill national security objective because the India's immediate security concern has been in Indian Ocean region or in the, in the Himalayan and, or Western border. Uh, it, it Indo engagement with the Indo-Pacific extends it to the, to the larger uh, uh, Pacific Ocean, which also includes the uh, South China Sea and other, other, other part of the world. Uh, so how, how it will help India to visualize a different kind of, uh, of, of security calculations in the contemporary global order? So see, as I've been saying for uh, some time now, India is in many ways in a geopolitical sweet spot which means that broadly the tide of international affairs seems to be in our favor. It is the toast of the world. Everybody seems to be wooing us. You know, since you're a scholar, I'll take you back. I think it was about three to four decades back when Manoj Joshi wrote an article about the wallflower and the dance of dinosaurs. So India was a wallflower and there were these two dinosaurs, Soviet Union and USA, who would dance around the room, but not even ask India for a dance. Today, it is the toast of the world. 
of the world. It is in a geopolitical sweet spot. And yet, you know, I see a great deal of accumulating strategic adversity around us, along the LAC, uh, line of um, actual control with the Chinese, which means along the Himalayas, the Western horizons. We see new alignments, um, new um, groupings, stabilities, instabilities in Afghanistan, the terror that could be coalescing. And even as India is fixed to these two terrestrial concerns, the plan is pivoting majorly into the IOR. See, it is already a maritime neighbor there. A carrier group could be operational. Chinese carrier group could be operational. Anytime, 26, 27, 28 in this time frame, which means you'll have regular Chinese maritime presence there. You know what's happening now to their bases, eastern maritime flank, western maritime flank. So as we are fixed to the borders, there is this threat emanating here. So the big skill of Indian statecraft is how we take care of these challenges along our borders without neglecting what is happening in the IOR. So the time has come to pivot very aggressively to the seas. And that should underline our whole vision for the Indo-Pacific. Now, the point that I make is that despite this great adversity, it is a test of India's strategic imagination. Imagination meaning what reforms you can do, how you can make your military more agile and fleet-footed diplomatic skills and combat resolve. And combat If you put all these together with skill, you will ensure deterrence. But if you do not put these together with skill, there are frailties in your strategic outlook. You will invite conflict. So capacities deter conflict. Frailties invite conflict. Which means that we must, you know, um, step up our ambitions and capacities in the IOR. Do all we can in terms of an A to AD network, in terms of undersea, surface and, you know, space capacities so that our military posture in the IOR, without being focused on any specific nation, without being belligerent, is good enough to deter threats which would come from any quarter to include China. So Indo-Pacific is a long game. It is a long game about agency, influence, and power in which combat capacities will play a major role. They are not the only drivers, but they will be salient drivers. So I think Indo-Pacific has to be seen in the context of this larger visage. And within that visage, how we can, uh, shall I say, resource it in the strategic military dimension to get a conflict. Sir, you have rightly pointed out the, the external that external alliancing and threat environment demands internal reforms and induced shift in political uh, military objective. And in your apt analysis of India-China challenge published in the print, underscores that China leads in ideation, execution, uh, civil military fusion, capacity building and branding. And majority of these defense reforms are induced internally. Uh, on these parameters, uh, where do we see uh, ongoing defense reforms in India uh, and how we can uh, do uh, more uh, uh, fundamental reforms in our system and our military strategy? 
So in that article on China, what I was actually saying was that, you know, in the after the Galwan crisis, we have sent a very significant message to China. We have sent a message, as we've done in the past in 67 in Samundrong Chu. Also, we have the message that we have sent is that there will be costs to pay for any adventurism. As, you know, so that huge rebalancing which has taken place in terms of movement of forces, mechanized forces, infantry, armor, artillery, reserves, beefing up of infrastructure, the necessary message has gone down to China. But my argument is that the Chinese threat lies beyond mere, mere operational rebalance. It lies in the larger strategic military domain. I'll give you one example. While we have rebalanced to the northern borders, the China is pivoting majorly from traditional combat to digital combat. So, you know, proficiencies in digital combat, which is a huge challenge by itself. So my argument is that the Chinese threat does not end with operational rebalancing. We have to do far more. Now, in that sense, one of the issues that you pointed out, reform is extremely important. What has happened in the last five to six, seven, eight years, in my view, two to three things. Firstly, in our strategic outlook, where we place the instrument of power, that has changed majorly. It is now a little more central to our strategic outlook. It was peripheral in the past, which means, shall I say, you see a, a more resolute foreign policy, but when you have a more resolute foreign policy, it must be backed by an equally nimble military instrument. I think it was George Schultz who said that negotiations are but a euphemism for capitulation unless the shadow of power is cast across the bargaining table. So I'm a pretty firm believer in that. Now, what kind of military do you need for the future? So you need a joint military a calibrated military, a technologically enabled military, and a ready military. Now, these are all one-word descriptors, but I can tell you, getting taking joint will take two to three decades. Technological enablement will take two to three decades. The Russian military was a formidable military. It proved to be unready. So each of these dimensions need to be carefully nursed and grown. And in that sense, the reforms that have occurred, for example, CDS-DMA, it was empowering the armed forces to basically art, you know, conceive, design, articulate, and execute change through the national security system. And all change will be pushed back. There will be controversies. For example, Agnivi, in my view, I think it is a scheme which you are from wherein you are moving from mere employment to talent maximization. And whenever you take these steps, there will be pushbacks. So the CDS DMA itself was game-changing. It was, it is more powerful than Barry Goldwater Nichols, the American kind of equivalent. Then you see now, as I said, you know, greater, what shall I say, um, uh, muscularity in our strategic outlook. Galwan, uh, Kailash, Balakot, so on and so forth. Which means what? That if we are going to uh, be more muscular, our instrument of force needs to be even more enabled. It is my view that India's defense forces today are good enough for to ensure our territorial integrity. They are good enough when it comes to defense. 
but they need to do a lot more if they are to become potent enough to enable India's rise, which means they have to become modern, agile, technologically enabled, able to project power. In that sense, we have begun well with CDSDMA. We should get to theater commands, but there is a lot to be done. You need more HR reforms. You need talent pipelines. You need technologically technological enablement. For example, I'll give you one, one metric today, AI. So missiles which are coming at you at max 7, max 8 cannot be responded to at the rate of human judgment. They have to be responded at the rate of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, which means this whole transition has to be made. Now, if you take AI, there are four prominent stacks in AI. There is data, there is computing, there is uh, algorithms, and there is engineering. All these four have to be worked at, which will take decades so this whole technological enablement, transition to digital combat, there are huge areas of further reform. Atmanirbharta is another good, it is not merely a sloganeering about self-reliance. It is unleashing the animal spirits in defense, which means startups, the private sector, DRDO, the armed forces, everybody comes together to... Uh, to you know, build capacities, technological innovation. The fight between the Chinese military and the US military is not merely about troops, numbers, ships, and aircraft. It is about technological innovation. So national security is getting so complex and sophisticated today that you need multi-pronged addressing. Now, if that is the you know, magnitude of the reforms, I would say we have just begun. While we have done well, we have done well, but as far as reforms are concerned in all these areas, we need to do far more. Uh, I agree with your thought-provoking ideas and well laid out uh, the, the structure that uh, the, the progress that is going uh, in terms of defense reforms. And I will come to the question of jointness in a minute, but before that, I would also want to know that one of the limitations that India is facing is the availability of resources to undertake these, these reforms, to carry out these reforms. Uh, how the Quad partner can facilitate or empower India's capability, uh, capacity and capital constraint to play more proactive role in the Indo-Pacific region? Because other three partners are more resourceful in terms of technology, in terms of capital, in terms of modernization. See, firstly, well, let's take the area of resources. So if you see um, the GDPs of these countries that you have named, we are what? We are 2.67. Japan is 2.86 trillion dollars. Australia, I think, is lesser than us. So even resources, we are not uh, too bad. Also, let me just give you uh, one argument. The American military budget is three times that of China. The Chinese military budget is three times that of India. Yet, whatever the Chinese are doing, it is causing displacement anxiety amongst the Americans. What we do does not cause similar displacement anxiety amongst the Chinese. So it is not a function of mere economics. All these areas, you know, strategic imagination, technology enablement, jointness, just as a critique, if you are going to take five years to set up theater commands, it doesn't reflect very well on our ability to reform. As I said, design and execute change. 
वो कौन करेगा वो तो हम नहीं करना इफ यू बिकम ज्वाइंट इफ यू बिकम निम्बल विद इन एग्जिस्टिंग बजट सिग्नेचर्स विल बी मोर पोर्टेंट दिस इज नॉट एन आर्ग्यूमेंट फॉर सेंग दैट वी डोंट नीड मोर बजट बट इट इज मेकिंग यूज बेटर यूज ऑफ एग्जिस्टिंग बजट एंड देन ऑफकोर्स गेट मोर बजट दैट इज दोल यू नो पॉइंट अबाउट रिसोर्सिंग and what was the other question you asked so there was uh, a follow up yeah i, I would uh, be interested to know that how uh, india how india can be facilitated by or empowered by other quad partners okay. now, now see even if you see the quad we instantly jump is the quad a military grouping why should it be a military grouping if push comes to shove on china we don't ask expect the americans to come and die for us along the lac we are capable of doing all that but if the, the quad offers a lot of leverage for technology accelerations or you know intelligence sharing and there are a lot of other areas within the quad within the which the quad grouping offers us so if we can move forward on ai blockchain quantum space cyber electronic warfare all capacities in all these dimensions are available within the mechanisms of quad if you go into the fine print of quad without necessarily asking for the americans to come and die for us along the lsc I mean, why should we do that all the aid which has been given to ukraine ukraine is fighting its own battle and india is a far bigger power than that so we i you know this argument for it to become a total military grouping is not necessary but yes you can move towards greater interoperability you can move to greater military exchanges also china is not a irrational power if it feels that because of quad india is benefiting in the military sense will it not get the message so interoperability the fact that we now exercise together with the americans and other quad partners in the east china sea in the south china sea all this message is going to the chinese they are not an irrational player so i am saying within existing arrangements the quad in terms of technology accelerations in sharing uh, making you know capacities in space available to us um, exchanges expertise development in the area of cyber so many things these need to be resourced and if they are resourced the indian military can become far more powerful and technologically enabled so i am saying the quad is a extremely useful instrument in this regard right sir uh, india's military prowess has been uh, rising and it is uh, recently uh, came into news that india has authorized export of defense product to 42 countries so it is now becoming exporting defense exporting hub to the smaller nations of indo pacific region uh, for example it has uh, exported missile system to philippines it has been exporting drones and other security apparatus to sri lanka and other small island countries uh addition to that what can india offer more uh to these iceland nations of the indo pacific region to strengthen their military capabilities uh in, in an alternative mechanism so where india will not be pursued as a hegemonic or threatening power rather as in a coalition building and a co-partner you know india has never been a hegemonic power india has never been a power which threatens 
and I'm pretty sure that there is no change in that basic policy. But we must draw distinctions in the nuances. For example, in the past, countries which we had very strong relationships with, even when it came to military exchanges, we said, listen, we don't give you um, lethal aid. We give you non-lethal aid. Now, which military will want non-lethal aid? All militaries are interested in lethal aid. The military by nature is lethal. So some of these shibboleths of the past we are shedding. And we are saying, all right, if Philippines wants Brahmos missiles and our missiles are good enough, we will give them. So we are ensuring the rights of self-defense of Philippines. It is not necessarily directed at any power, not necessarily directed at anybody. Philippines has the right to self-defense, just as Vietnam has. And if in the process, our arms industry gets a boost, it not only adds to India's influence, prestige and agency in the region, it also gets us revenue. So in that sense, I think we have set some, shed some shibboleths of the past. And if you export, you get more internationally competitive. You get internationally competitive. Your defense sector gets competitive. Now in Atmanir Bharta, when our startups are going to take off, our PSUs are becoming smarter. Our DRDO is an agency with a lot of uh, scientific heft. Why should we not leverage all this? as part of our foreign policy metric, one of which is arms exports. So for all the reasons, I think it's a very good step and we could now further enlarge it in the areas of precision, in the areas of imaging, in the areas of small arms, expertise, space. After all, India is a space power of consequence. So if basically we have shed the shibboleths of the past, we have this very strong network of defense attaches across the globe. Defense attaches. Why should they also not help to, you know, uh, those uh, arms and equipment where we are good, where we have an expertise, why should we not use it as an agency for, as I said, growing our influence? So that is precisely what we are doing. And I think we have some set some figures of exports of uh, some $40 million or something like that. We've set some benchmarks for DPSUs and all to rise up to the challenge. So in my view, it's, it's a perfectly good idea. But the new security environment underlines re-emergence of maritime space as a geopolitical theater for great power competition. This forces India to reinvest uh, more on maritime security along with the managing the persisting territorial conflict with China and Pakistan. Uh, and that actually may create uh, conflict within the services, uh, not conflict in terms of uh, some, some fundamental conflict, but their worldviews are different in terms of warfare. So there will be a problem in terms of allocation of resources, in terms of reframing the doctrines, in terms of resetting the strategies. So how, how India can uh, shift uh, its, its approach from continental to maritime, and what are the views of three services on, on this, this shifting? See, the views of the services will be as you grow the services. So traditionally, we have grown the services in this narrow-minded manner of air, land, and sea. So once you have grown them in this manner, 
they they reflect the kind of uh, uh, training and ethos of the past but the indian military which is a modern military is very conscious of the fact that jointness now what is jointness if you merge the attributes of air land and sea also fuse them with the emerging domains the indian military will grow in consequence tomorrow's war will be fought together why these three domains i'll add three more to you cyber space ew undersea outer space so it is no longer a conflict of land air or sea it is a conflict across domains and the indian military is conscious of it of course within that there are legitimate concerns for example if even if you pivot to the indian ocean region it should not be at the cost of our defenses along the lac now this calibration these challenges will have to be managed are there ways of doing it of course so we can become joint we can in fact even jointness is passing jointness is a concept of the 90s militaries have moved from jointness to integration to cross pollination and today the buzzword in strategic circles is civil military fusion what happened in ukraine microsoft was deployed elon musk was deployed elon musk's starlink terminals not only ensured strategic communications they ensured target designation the cyber us cyber command deployed forward hunting teams in ukraine so you are seeing the private sector private sector not only in capacity building but in war fighting so forget the services private sectors have to come in startups have to come in therefore i'm pointing to civil military fusion so these you know service specific angularities are a thing of the past and nobody realizes it better than the services amongst themselves and therefore they are committed to jointness and to integration and to civil military fusion the challenges are in the details of the execution as i said even as you pivot to the seas you should not get imbalanced along the land these will always remain for example there is little doubt that china is the threat pakistan is the pest but you see what happens each time we focus on china something happens here 62 followed by 65 um uh sumandrong chu followed by um uh, brass tacks doklam followed by balakot opulwama so these challenges will remain about where you focus your threats how you get joint but in so far as the basic logic and rationale of jointness is concerned i don't think there's any dispute uh with this that uh, we have uh, andman nicobar command and it's been established uh, since 2001 uh, after recommendation of kargil review committee uh, and uh, and the uh, committee of the arun singh uh, committee of higher defense management uh, but there's a more critical writings in the academia uh, and, and we don't know the real operational part of it but uh, my my curiosity is to know that how uh this uh, andman nicobar command can facilitate uh india's uh, quad objectives and and uh, it it can extend uh, you know the the example to have so the india jointness capabilities see the creation of the andman nicobar command is a follow up of the 
recommendations of the Subramanian Committee, and I think Kargil reforms, was once again a path-breaking step. It was a path-breaking step in not only integration, but also because it said that India will project, start projecting its power beyond its shores. Now, projection of power beyond its shores does not mean that we will jackboot around the world with our military. But it will make sure that a professional, sophisticated, calibrated military can respond to crisis beyond our shores when the national interest so demands. So there is a critical difference. In that sense, the Andaman Nicobar was a natural aircraft carrier at sea. A natural aircraft carrier at sea or a base from which you could project your capacities beyond. Marakka Straits and beyond. Now, if you have a viable, you know, shall I say, instrument or a system for power projection, it does send necessary signals to adversaries and competitors alike. Now, in that sense, I think the Andaman Nicobar Command has underperformed. While a lot has happened, there has been infrastructure upgradation, uh, jointness has happened, we are in a better position to ensure our, you know, coastal security, so on and so forth. As an instrument of power projection, this natural aircraft carrier at sea, this is something we could have done better. And once again, the problem lies in, you know, half-baked steps towards jointmanship. So it, I, I think it was a very far-sighted step, and it is not too late even now. If we look at it as this base for power projection, and if we do that and we substantially improve our infrastructure and assets, it will help greatly in, in securing India. See, when you project power, what do you do? You meet threats away from your shores. You make sure that you deal with those threats before they come to your shores. After all, why should the Americans pivot from the safety of their homeland to the Western Pacific? They're not fools. It's not an exercise in, uh, shall I say, ego satisfaction. There are strong you know, elements of power in it. As somebody, I think Guru Tegh Bahadur said, he said, Bal hoye, bandhan chute, sab kuch lage When shackles snap, strength accrues, and everything seems a strategy. The sheer logic of power. We should not be ashamed of power. Our Indian power is benign. Indian power will never be hegemonic. It will never be aggressive. It will be exercised in the right of self-defense, whether that is along our borders or 600 nautical miles beyond our shores. If we come to acceptance of this reality, I think we'll be, we'll, we'll be more sure-footed when it comes to endeavors like the Andaman and Nicobar. Uh, right, sir. Uh, in addition to that, most of other scholars argued that India's presence in the Indian Ocean uh, and uh, despite the India's presence in the Indian Ocean, maritime security has actually remained outside of India's strategic interest, concerns and thinking due to its continental threats. And that's obvious. Uh, but at the Sangrila dialogue in 2018, Prime Minister Modi has outlined Indian concept of Indo-Pacific from Africa to the Americans with uh, covers both Indian and Pacific Oceans. 
He has also stated the conceptualization is not directed against any nation, rather India aspire to achieve inclusiveness and openness in the, uh, with the regional centrality. Uh, with, with that wider conceptualization and the academic writings on it, uh, can you provide an outline of India's possible military strategy toward Indo-Pacific region? Because the political leadership is now more open uh, to visualize it. Uh, rather than the political, the, the academic writings are saying that still it is limited to the continental uh, strategy. So, you see this uh, this whole narrative of India being sea blind, you know, blind to the seas. I don't think it's a true narrative. If you go back to our civilizational history, we were a maritime power of consequence. I think it was Mr. Panikkar who pointed out about the salience of India in that in the Indian Ocean, when he wrote that seminal book, I think, India in the Indian Ocean. There have been other writings, Vice Admiral Roy, Mihir Roy, Vice Admiral Nair, Admiral Arun Prakash. They have been constantly arguing for an enhancement of a maritime power. I think Mr. Modi or the Prime Minister also echoed a similar sentiment. I agree with him totally. The point is what? That when you take naval power to the oceans, you do not, it is not a measure of aggressiveness. You are actually stabilizing the oceans. And of course, there is little doubt that the, you know, uh, the surest way of ensuring economic growth is through the seas. In that context, you know, this concept of Sagar and what the Prime Minister outlined in the Shangri-La Dialogue, they are extremely important. But why we have fallen short, one is a matter of resources. And one is, of course, there is this, you know, very viable uh, threat along the land borders coming from both Pakistan and China and their collusivity. So there are challenges, but there are smart ways to overcome those challenges. And one of these um, you know, ways, I say, is by organizational restructuring. And when the theater commands get launched, which should be very soon, the maritime theater command will be the first. But together with that, you need to build enhance shipbuilding capacities. You see, China is going to be a six aircraft carrier Navy by 2035. We already have their submarine presence in the Iowa. So we really need, uh, I don't think everybody any longer debates the need for India to acquire a potent oceanic profile. The fact that a maritime security advisor has been appointed in the NSCS again points to the need. The challenge is now in generating resources and in the speed of execution. There we need to step up to it. So uh, is China's threat on Himalayan border uh, uh, limits India's strategic military alliance in the Indo-Pacific region? It doesn't limit it, but it is an obvious constraint. If China was not a threat along our borders, we could have been an oceanic power of great consequence. We'd be sailing in the South China Sea, East China Sea, perhaps the Atlantic. <laughs> but the fact that China is a threat, but there's no point uh, you know, in hypothesizing. The fact is that China is a threat. So the skill of our statecraft lies within these threats. How do we divide resources? 
And are there ways I'm saying, there are ways within existing budgets by optimization, by organizational restructuring, a lot of these, this, this stuff can be done. It is possible with, within budgets and of course additional budgets will help. But there's little doubt in my mind that our turn to the seas is delayed. It is long delayed. Not that it's not happening, but it needs to be nursed with greater vigor. Great, sir. Uh, what could be your... Maritime power is now coming to the Indo-Pacific from Europe. UK sending ships. Uh, France is sending ships. We really have to step up to the plate. So what could be your possible suggestions and inputs that how India should uh, you know, assert its maritime uh, uh, power uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, and uh, without, you know, uh, 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 without provoking China on the Himalayan border? So what are the alternative domains that, that doesn't hurt Chinese sensitivity in the ocean region? Yeah, I, I think we have taken good care not to ensure hurt Chinese sensitivities. But China seems to get provoked nevertheless. For example, can you give me one good reason why Galwan happened? There was no provocation. Now, if there is no provocation, and that is going to be the nature of Sino-Indian relations, instead of focusing too much on their sensitivities, we must focus on our capacities. There are capacities will keep their insensitivities in check. So the point is capacity. And here, as I said, by sensible allocation of resources, by changes in our strategic outlook, by essentially becoming more smart in national security, it is possible to resource both the continental domain and the oceanic domain. In fact, the central challenge of our statecraft is how we balance our continental imperatives with our maritime geopolitics. Now, it is a matter of detail, but it can be done. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant General Basukla, sir. It's a great conversation, and uh, I have learned a lot of things, and I think the audiences will get benefited from the very innovative, insightful uh, ideas. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Chaudhary. Great pleasure interacting with you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Rate this conversation on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website, ipcircle.org, and follow us on Twitter at ip underscore circle. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the Council for Strategic and Defense Research or the Center for Policy Research.